0: History. Uh, and it's just been a, a, an Old Testament survey, um, s- selecting various chapters from the Old Testament that are showing us how uh, God's telling a story. It has, it has an arc to it, a redemptive arc that's leading us to the, uh, the end of the story, the climax, which is Jesus in the New Testament, right? So the Old Testament's setting the stage for Jesus. And we've looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 3, looking at creation and, and corruption. Uh, how how those are telling us about Jesus and the story that God is telling. We looked at the the call of Abraham and the call of Moses and how those show us Jesus. And we've looked at places like the Ten Commandments and and Psalm 100 and how those uh, unveil and reveal Jesus. We've looked at uh, the the, the crossing of the Red Sea and the, the conquering of Jericho, how those are unveiling Jesus to us. We looked at the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man and how those point to Jesus. And and on and on and on. This morning, we're in the last chapter of the Old Testament. So turn to Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. And we're in the last chapter of Malachi, the last chapter of the Old Testament to see how it points to Jesus, how it's unveiling uh, Jesus to us. So if you found Malachi chapter four, Uh, Let's stand in honor of God's word. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let me pray for us. Lord, these are are the last Words of the Old Testament, they're sobering words. There's warnings here, but there's also promises. Through the promises, through the warnings, through the prophets, through the law, we pray that we would see Jesus more clearly. In his name we pray, amen. All right, please, please be seated. Um, I'm... I'm (laughs) Forgive me, I'm remembering now an announcement I forgot to mention that we forgot to put in the bulletin. Anyway, um, in addition to the men's retreat, um, guys, there's a uh, men's golf outing the weekend after the men's retreat. So that's Sunday afterward. What date is that, Steve? 25th. Sunday the 25th. Um, and if you want to, to play golf together, you can talk to Steve, that handsome gentleman back there. All right. Um, and we'll, have, we'll, we'll, we'll remember the announcement this week. Alright, so the, uh, the end of the Old Testament, God's telling us about the day of the Lord that's coming, this, this day of judgment. And in order to prepare for that day, in order to be ready for that day, in order to understand that day in light of all that God's telling His people throughout the whole Bible, He's also telling us to, to do two things, to remember the law of Moses, remember Moses, and to be on the lookout for Elijah. Moses and Elijah have a lot to do with the day of the Lord, whatever that is, right? But we're gonna, we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna talk about, the, we're gonna talk about Moses, we're gonna talk about Elijah, and we're gonna talk about the day of the Lord. So let's begin with Moses and the law. And when in verse four, God says, "'Remember the law of my servant Moses, "'the statutes and rules that I commanded him "'at Horeb for all Israel, why you, you and I ought to be asking ourselves, why would God want us to remember the law of Moses? I mean, isn't that Old Testament stuff? Isn't that, you know, other, other people's mail? Isn't that for Israel or whatever? We're in the new covenant, right? Why do we need to remember God's law? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, the the first reason that I think is really important for us is to, to think about the law correctly, right? Why... Um, why should we remember God's law? First of all, if we think of it uh, as somebody else's male, then we're, we're, we tend to think uh, like the law doesn't pertain to us anymore. Yes, it does. It does pertain to us, but maybe not in the way that you think. So the twofold thing of this is that it, it does not, it, it, and it doesn't pertain to us in this way, and it never pertained to anybody uh, in the Old Testament this way as a means to earn God's favor and to score merit points in heaven. Like, you know, the bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming, look busy, right? Like when when he comes back, you wanna make sure that you're you're minding your P's and Q's. Uh, You wanna stay on his good side. That's, That's never been applicable you know, as a means to get God's favor and to, to have merit with him. That, that does, because the purpose of the law is to show us that we actually cannot do that. And so when, when God tells us, in light of the day of the Lord that's coming, remember the law of Moses, he wants us to know the purpose of the law, which Paul tells us about in, when he wrote to the Galatians. So in chapter 3, of Galatians, Paul, you know, basically addresses our question head on. Why then the law? Okay? And he reasons like this. He says, if a law had been given that could give life, that, that could score us points and favor with God and get us into heaven and so on, then righteousness would indeed have been by the law. But the Scripture, listen to this language. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what does it mean that the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin? It means that the law justly, just like our laws are supposed to justly, lift up the good and, and call out, you know, what's bad and, and punish the bad and become a, you know, a, a disincentive for bad behavior and uncivil behavior. That's what good laws are supposed to do. God's law condemns unrighteousness and exalts righteousness. And so because, guess what, you know, we've all broken the law. We're, we're, we're in church. We can admit it. We're sinners and so the law imprisons us. I mean, it not only convicts us, but it, 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 you know, there's a sentence for sin. There's a, there's a, there's a consequence for breaking the law. Uh, it, it keeps us in prison and so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, that we would start to say, how do I get out of this mess? I know I'm a lawbreaker. I know the law condemns me. I know it's imprisoned me. Uh, spiritually speaking and so I need to get out I don't want to stay in this condition and therefore the laws purpose is to point us away from ourselves and and get us over ourselves and over our you know uh, feigned ability to be righteous and and look for righteousness outside of ourselves look for forgiveness and pardon outside of ourselves and that's where Jesus comes in by faith in somebody else not faith in myself Not faith in my abilities, faith in Jesus, faith in his abilities. So, following, continuing with Paul's language, he says, So then, the law was our guardian, our prison keeper, you know, convicting judge, etc., until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith in Jesus. So, Long way of saying what what the NIV translates it as, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So when the Old Testament shows us the law, it's not saying do this and you will live. It's saying you can't do this. You need what the sacrifices are pointing to. You need a, a Savior. You need forgiveness. You need redemption. You need to look outside yourself. Uh, And that's the point of the law. So as we're looking and and having this conversation about the day of the Lord, don't forget the law's purpose. It points us to Jesus. It points us outside of ourselves to rely on another. So the law uh, has been expressed by uh, one commentator. He he described it as the lifestyle of the redeemed. Alec Mateer, uh, in his book, Look to the Rock, says that the law of the holy God is not a ladder of merit whereby sinners seek to come to God to win his favor and climb into his good books, so to speak. His holy law is rather his appointed and required pattern of life for those who by redemption through faith in Christ have been brought to him already and who already belong to him, and who already are in his good books. And Matthieu describes and says, the law of God is the lifestyle of the redeemed. So once we're brought into the kingdom, then we ask the question, how do I start living consistently with this kingdom? He's brought me from death to life. He's brought me out of this world into his new world. I don't want to import the old world's garbage into the new world. I don't, I don't want to bring the smell of smoke and death and, you know, all that that used to describe my life uh, into the, the, the beauty of, of his presence. I, I want to reflect his goodness. And that's the, the purpose of the law for the redeemed is to, to be in sync with what God's doing to make everything new, not earning our way, but because it's already been given to us. Uh, now we get the law fulfilled in Christ, right? So remember the law, remember its purpose. It doesn't get us merit badges with, G- with, with God. Instead, it, it shows us how do we live consistently with his kingdom once we've already put our faith in Christ, who fulfilled the law for us. When Jesus came, the one who the Old Testament is pointing to, he be- began his ministry, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, And he said really remarkable things throughout that sermon, but one of the most astonishing things is when he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. It's not like, well, we're done with that now. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What did he mean by that? He fulfilled the law. He did, as a human being, as our representative, what none of us could do, which was that he kept the entire law. He obeyed every single commandment and never had a bad day. It's not like, well, he was 99.8% perfect. He was 100% all day, every day, and fulfilled the law. He's the human being each of us was meant to be and aspired to be. Insofar as the law summed up is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Who doesn't want to live like that? But we can't, right? But Jesus could. And he did. And so as our righteous representative, his status then becomes our status. He fulfilled the law for us. But that's not the only way that he fulfilled the law. Because the law not only gives us stipulations of, you know, thou shalt and thou shalt not and so on. This is what I want you to do or not do. The law also gave us consequences. Oh, by the way, if you break this or if you don't do that, then this, then that. And Jesus fulfilled that too. And that's why our righteous representative who kept the law all day, every day, ended up on a cross as our sin-bearing substitute. He kept that part of the law too, right? So Galatians 4 sums it up, Paul's again to the Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, us. He fulfilled it for us, positive and the negative, so that we might receive the adoption of the Son, so that we might be welcomed by faith in him, trusting in him, what he did for us on the cross, in the resurrection. We're new creations in him, right? So that's why the Old Testament wants us to remember the law rightly. You know, the purpose of the law, to point us outside of ourselves for a savior who's gonna come and fulfill the law in our place. And we're to look out for Elijah. Remember Moses, and behold, verse five, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Uh, Who are the prophets? You know, I'm sure maybe you're familiar with prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and we've looked at some of them if you're new to the Bible. These are the, uh, the people who would speak God's words as his representatives, and they would, they would call out a lot of injustice and hypocrisy and inconsistency, and they would speak these unbelievably beautiful promises to God's people holding out for them the hope of a, of a creation restored and renewed and made better. Like everything sad would come untrue. So the prophets were famous for their, their promises and, and their warnings, right? And they could be, you know, pretty graphic in that language, as we see, right, here in, 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 uh, uh, in Malachi 4. Well, back to Jesus and, and to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3, right before Jesus stepped onto the scene, something happened. And in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and his message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The day of the Lord is near, right? Uh, And then we're told that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Just for your information. Just in case you were curious, gee, John the Baptist sounds like an interesting person. I wonder what he wore and I wonder what he ate. Like, do you ever just come across verses in the Bible in, 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 your, in your daily Bible reading? Right? Okay. This is what, we, what we're hoping for, what we're looking, you know, aspiring to. Uh, do you ever come across places in the Bible that you just go, why are they telling me this? Or What is this about? I don't understand. I, I, why? Why? Do, why, do, why am I being told that John wore a garment of camel's hair and enjoyed leather belts and honey and locusts? Well, when you when you come across places like that, what? Here's how not to read the Bible. Oh, uh, camel's hair and leather belt. Uh, who knows? You know, and just keep going. No. Um, underline that, or make a note, or whatever, and and do a little digging. Uh, Kyle and Tom and Karen and I, we were all at JMU together as undergraduates and part of a ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. That's where I learned to study the Bible. And we would would get together and have these little workshops on, like, okay, when you find something like that, pull out your Bible dictionary or, or get a study Bible and read those notes. Or nowadays, get out your phone and Google, who's the dude with the camel's hair coat and, you know, leather belt and so on? And guess what you'll find? just this little verse back in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, where this person comes to the king of Israel, uh, or the king of Judah, and, you know, pronounces doom and gloom. And then, you know, the king's like, well, who's that? And he's asking his, uh, his, his messengers. And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And the king said, oh, it is Elijah the Tishbite. It's Elijah. John the Baptist is deliberately standing in the role of Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So it's not random stuff about John the Baptist that we're reading. We're reading that, oh, this is the Elijah that was promised. This is who we're supposed to be looking out for. The promises and the warnings of the prophets have a purpose, right? Right? They speak God's words to call people back into a relationship with him. John the Baptist's message was repent, for the, the kingdom of God is at hand. The day of the Lord's coming. Be ready. Is your soul ready? Are you, are you prepared for that day? And again, we see, um, back to, to, to the Sermon on the Mount, how Jesus says, I not only came to, to fulfill the law, I also came to fulfill the prophets. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He fulfilled the law, right? Keeping all the commandments, even enduring all the punishments. And Jesus came to fulfill all of the prophets' promises and their warnings. He came to fulfill both. You know, when... After he gathered all the disciples, and after he uh, had gone about his public ministry and was getting a following and so on, he, 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 take, he sets apart a certain day, and he takes with him Peter and James and John, and they go up on a mountain to pray. And something happens at the top of that mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, Luke chapter 9, we're told that as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzlingly white, and behold... Two men appeared, and we're talking with them. Who do you think those two, two individuals were? Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, literally his exodus, another Old Testament connection, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. As you should a prophet. He's speaking my words. Listen to him, right? So, a couple of things, that, real quick, about the Mount of Transfiguration. In the Old Testament, if you, if you wanted to prove something legally, if you, if you wanted to make something irrefutable and, and that would stand and hold up in the culture and the, the courts and so on, you needed two witnesses. You couldn't prove anything on the basis of one eyewitness. You needed two. And in order to validate Jesus' ministry as the one who's speaking God's word to the world, God provides two witnesses, and not just any couple of witnesses, but Moses and Elijah. Like the two figureheads for the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And they're the ones who are standing there witnessing and attesting to the truth that Jesus is God's word incarnate to us. Listen to him. He's the prophet. And he's going to tell you God's promises. and He's going to give you God's warnings. And they're reliable and trustworthy. And they're for our good. Jesus didn't just come to tell us God's words. He was God's word incarnate. He was God's word with us. Jesus didn't just come to communicate with us. He came to commune with us. God wants a relationship with us, not just that we can know facts and doctrine and data and get all of our Bible memory verses down. That's great. That's good. But that's not the end. That's that's a means to a relationship and communion with the one who loves us, our heavenly King our Father in heaven, right? So Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets speaking God's word, his promises, his warnings in in order to commune with us, to have a relationship with us, and to prepare us for the day of the Lord. This great and awesome day, verse 5, right? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What what will the day of the Lord be like? What is this great and awesome day? How, more importantly, how is Jesus the fulfillment of these words, right? He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the prophets. How does Jesus fulfill for us what the day of the Lord is about? Well, let's look at it. Um, Verse 2 in in Malachi 4 says that, for you who fear my name, right, you who love me, and I, you know, we're in relationship, we're in a covenant relationship with one another through faith in his Son, you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with, with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And, I mean, and these prophetic descriptions of God's salvation are, are, are pretty great, you know, we think they're wonderful, and Okay, and maybe maybe we're not so um, maybe we're a little removed from the agrarian context where the the imagery of going out, leaping like calves from the stall just you know resonates deeply with you. That's okay, but but he, rising, the sun rising with healing in its wings is a is a wonderful reassurance that God's gonna gonna rid the world of all of its pain and, and sadness and, and misery, right, and that. Even if, even if you never stepped foot on a farm your entire life, you know, we know. We've seen the, the YouTube or Instagram little videos of some dog or animal or cow even released from its stall, released from its pen or its cage or whatever, and it just starts flipping out because it's so excited to be free, right? And somehow... That imagery of just being completely unburdened from all of the weight and the heaviness of this life where where we find ourselves and we're not even aware of it and so somehow we notice, why are my shoulders all hunched over? Why is my back so tense? Why is my brow furrowed? Why are my muscles all so tight? And the day of the Lord is the promise to God's people that a day is going to come where we're going to inhale deeply. We're going to relax our shoulders. We're going to release the strain on our muscles. And our our eyes are going to rise. And our chins are going to lift up. And we're not going to be afraid anymore. And we're not going to feel pain anymore. And sorrow and sigh are going to flee away. And and we're going to... (laughs) We're going to frolic like a freaking cow released from its stall. And we're going to frolic Forever. And for those of you who are so stodgy and you don't understand what the frolicking looks like, you're gonna go like this, you know, forever. And that's what's coming. And it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. And okay, you know, it, it, this is just a tiny little keyhole view into the promises that are waiting for God's people at the day of the Lord. It's just like this. Imagine what the, the macro view looks like, the reality. Well. At the same time, so while the day of the Lord's kind of got this forever frolicking going on for God's people, it also, God's word tells us that it will be the opposite for those who say no. No. No to God no to his promises no to his warnings no to his laws no to his prophets no to his Savior right prophets have stern warnings for the arrogant and those who who do evil right look at verse 1 Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's hard to hear, isn't it? I hope it's hard to hear. If it's not hard to hear, and if you read those words or hear those words, and go, yeah, too bad for them. You're in danger of this. Your heart is hard. This needs to break our hearts. There's a day coming that, that is going to like remove the, the um, there should be neither root nor branch. I've got a, a redbud tree behind our house that was growing too big, and I, I cut it down last season. And this summer, I mean, it was down to the root, down to the, the trunk, you know. It's just a stump out of, coming out of the dirt. And this season, it's sprouted up all these shoots, and it's, just, it's taller than I am now, like in, in four months. I thought the thing was dead. day's going to come that will leave neither root nor branch. Nothing's going to come back. We, I mean, I think you're like me. We love the promises of frolicking forever, but we, we chafe, we don't know what to do, we, we struggle with the warnings of Scripture, and, and it's, we should struggle with these warnings. But one thing we should not do is be selective with Scripture. Where, oh, um, I like these promises, but these warnings, I don't like those. And so I don't know if I believe those. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think those are real. I don't, think those, I don't think the loving God would do that. Look, you, know, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, the promises are true and good and reliable and trustworthy, but, you know, the warnings, they're optional. I just, I mean, on face value, that makes no sense. Either you can trust what God says or not. And if you don't believe the warnings, then what business do we have believing the promises? Eugene Peterson <clears throat> um, was a prolific Author, uh, a beautiful pastor. He wrote the paraphrase that some of you have called the message. Uh, and after he retired from from uh, pastoral ministry, he and his wife moved, I think, like to the woods somewhere in Canada on a lake, and they just basically hosted people to bring spiritual renewal into their lives. Um, and he would host all kinds of people. Bono, you know, hung out for a weekend or something. Um, and Eugene Peterson wrote a, a series of books for pastors in particular. One of the titles was called The Contemplative Pastor, and that makes perfect sense because Eugene Peterson was a really low-key, very calm, very gentle man, um, you know, meek in the right, word, right, right frame of that word. Uh, and so imagine my surprise as I'm reading The Contemplative Pastor and thinking, gee, I kind of wish I was this contemplative. Um, and I got to chapter 4. And the title for chapter 4 was the apocalyptic pastor. Which, which scared me. I'm, I'm not a, I don't want to be an apocalyptic pastor. I don't want to be like one of those crazy wild-eyed guys who are foaming at the mouth and screaming sermons at their people. That just seems like wrong, right? You know me well enough. That's not my speed. Um, but that's not what he meant. Well, We know that there's sort of a caricature of Christianity where people are mean and shrill and angry, and they end up using the law and the prophets in sort of this scorched earth Christianity method that just leaves nothing but smoking wreckage in their wake. And we kind of shrink back from that, right? That's not me. I don't want to do that. but we do. Maybe you're not foaming at the mouth and screaming at people. I don't know. Maybe you are. <laughs> I hope you're not. But, but we end up doing it anyway in the way that we misuse the law and we misuse God's Word. When we start thinking, and this happens just because we, have, we still have a sin nature and we have to always keep it in check because we end up by default using the law, thinking that this is what makes me good, this is what makes me righteous, this is what makes me noble, this is what makes me acceptable to God. And God help the people who don't keep the same laws that I do. Because I'm going to judge them, and I'm going to criticize them, and I'm going to come down hard on them. But let's not talk about the laws I don't keep. (laughs) Let's not go there. Right? But we end up trampling underfoot the people that don't live the same way we do, who don't value the same things we do, who don't keep the same laws that we do. And that's kind of our caricature apocalyptic. What about God's Word, right? We've got our truths, we've got our favorite doctrines, our favorite verses, and God help the people that don't agree with us theologically. God help the people that forget that verse or you know, don't hold the same scripture passages to the, with the same esteem that we do. And again, we trample them underfoot. And we use the word, we use God's truth as a weapon instead of a means to invite people into communion with him, right? Peterson wasn't talking about apocalyptic screaming pastors. He was using the word apocalypse uh, in, its, in its accurate form, which is simply uh, means an unveiling, a revealing, that, that apocalyptic pastors, our job is to reveal Jesus. Yeah, there's a boldness to being an apocalyptic pastor. There's, a, there's an urgency to being an apocalyptic pastor, but guess what? God's not only looking for apocalyptic pastors. He's looking for apocalyptic people. People who reveal and unveil Jesus to their neighbors and to the nations. And that's all of us. Like last week we were talking about, we're all priests. In that sense, we're we're all apocalyptic pastors. We're all called to be apocalyptic people showing the world the reality of Jesus and pulling back the veil on him. Without the shrillness, without the meanness, but but certainly with the urgency and certainly with the boldness that helps people see the day of the Lord is coming. There's a day coming that that we need to help people to reckon with and prepare for because we want them to see Jesus. We want them to to hear Jesus in our words. We want them to, to see him more clearly in how we speak. We want people to see Jesus more clearly and how we obey and how we keep the law. We want people to see and understand and experience Jesus more clearly in how we do our work, right? We want people to see Jesus and experience his reality and how we do friendships and how we do our marriages and how we do parenting and how we regard sex and how we regard money and how we regard gender and how we regard all of these different topics. Like, Are we doing all those things as a way for our neighbors and the nations to see Jesus more clearly? We've been spending so much time in the Old Testament trying to reckon with the fact that the Old Testament's job is to help people see Jesus more clearly. So just like the Old Testament, just like how every story and every episode is pointing to Jesus and revealing him, Shouldn't every episode and every aspect of our lives be pointing to him and revealing him more clearly too? That's what's going to make us apocalyptic people. Just wrapping up. The day of the Lord. If you belong to Jesus, do you know that the day of the Lord already came? It was crushing, and it crushed him. It crushed him so that he could lift us up. And he was trampled underfoot, right? So that we could be exalted, so that we could be brought into his presence, so that we can have fellowship with him. He took the judgment of the day of the Lord, that furnace, right? that, that root or branch um, it was cut off in our place. He did that for us so that the curse would be satisfied and the blessings would flow for all who trust in Him. Have you trusted in Him? Is He your hope? Is He your, is he your insulation against the day of the Lord? If He's not, the day of the Lord is still in your future. But through faith in Jesus, the day of the Lord moves to your past. And for those who are in Christ, we, we don't fear that day. We're looking forward to it. We are joining the New Testament saints who conclude, interestingly, like we've been looking at the last chapter of the Old Testament. Do you know what the last chapter of the New Testament is? Revelation 22, when the day of the Lord comes. When Jesus comes back and we're not fearing that day. Instead, we're, our chins are high and we're looking up with hope. Hope in the one who's coming hoping the one who's going to rid the world of evil and wickedness and darkness and pain and misery and destruction is going to bring his new creation. So we want it to come. That's why we agree with Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, come. Let me pray. Lord, we give you... Thanks for Jesus. The fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the prophets, the, the one who would fulfill even the day of the Lord so that we would not have to fear the consequences for our own sin, but, but we could rest in His righteousness. That we could glory in His goodness. That we could have Him for our own. That He would cover us. That He would make us His forever. That we could frolic forever. Lord, give us that hope and let that uh, let that vision shape our lives so that everything in us, everything about us, every, every act, every word, every relationship, everything would point to him, it would reveal him and unveil him more clearly uh, to those around us. Lord, we pray uh, that you would continue to have communion with us, that you would bless us as we continue the service.